Hey, welcome to Genre Exposure, a film podcast. Join us as we explore the wide world of cinema, broaden our horizons one movie at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Dustin, and as usual, I am here with Jason. Hey, everyone, and Happy New Year to everyone, and you, Dustin. Welcome How are you? to the other side, my friend. Yes. A new year to explore. <laughs> a new year of um, movie watching. And uh, there's some good stuff coming out this year. I have a good feeling about there is. it. I'm excited. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm glad to rise from the ruins of 2023. Uh-huh. Uh, also had some good movies. But personally, yeah. it was like a crappy year for almost everyone we know for some <laughs> yes, reason. Yes, it was. I don't know why. Uh, and then it almost killed me there at the end. So that was... Yeah. Uh, but uh, you have been reborn. I have been. You have been reforged in a crucible of fire. <laughs> like the phoenix, I shall always rise. <laughs> yes. And bring you more shitty movies. <laughs> um, I've got a bit of a still like lingering cough, gunky thing going on. So I think it's sounds good, I'm though. trying to keep that yeah. in check, and we'll try to cut around it. But if there's some coughing in this episode, I apologize in advance. Well, you always cough. It doesn't matter how um, you're feeling. To catch up anyone that just listens to the podcast and doesn't check social media, this episode was delayed. Unfortunately, it's the first time we've ever had to delay an episode because I got a rampaging case of the flu and was laid up for quite a while. He was on his deathbed. Yeah. Um, had his eulogy written and everything. Yeah, I was ready to go. I was, <laughs> I, I was ready for Jason's genre exposure where it's just all like, you know, kids in peril all the time. <laughs> I was going through his uh, Blu-ray <laughs> collection, putting stickers and all the stuff I wanted. <laughs> Got to divide it up between you and Michael. <laughs> or, or, well, I guess you can just get it all and he can take the codes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but no, we're, we're good. We're rolling. We're starting the year off with a listener suggestion, The Fisher King from 1991. Sticking in the 90s a little bit. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong well, with that. It's pretty fun. It depends. Um, first time we're going to talk about Robin Williams, really, on the podcast. In and any Terry measure, Gilliam. And Terry Gilliam. Super cool. Yeah. Um, but before that... As usual, we're going to talk about what we've been watching. And you know, since it is the first episode of the year, and mm-hmm. I have that whole like Stan Lee mentality of like every issue is somebody's first issue, uh-huh. going to lay down some stuff out the gate. So first thing is, we are part of the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, and we love it. And there's all kinds of other cool shows that you can fill your ear holes with. Mm-hmm. Different types of movies, focus on genre, lots of horror, of course, because... Prescribed films, we love horror. Here, we love horror. Sure as hell do. That, that's the through line that connects us all and our love. Mm-hmm. Um, so go check that out. Go find all the other cool shows on our network, probably that are more professional and better than us, and enjoy what they do as well. Mm-hmm. Please do. Uh, other this, thing The is, site's been revamped recently, too, and it looks good. Yeah, they, uh, they cleaned it up a little bit. We mm-hmm. have like a crypt now for kind of the shows that have dropped off. Yeah. You can still access those, but they're, they're a little further down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, super cool. So go give that a look. Check out some of those. Second thing is, if you are for some reason just tuning in for the first time and you're a little new to genre exposure, a few things about us. We are a spoiler podcast. We do get into every detail of the plot in our discussion. So Perhaps too much. Perhaps too much sometimes, <laughs> some may say. Um, so if you are curious at all about watching the film we are about to talk about, maybe think about watching it first. If you care about spoilers, if that's a thing, that's a problem for you at all. Uh, other thing is we pretty much pride ourselves on just being flat out honest, as honest as we can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't really relish in bashing on a film, but no, no. Uh, we at least try to make it jokey if we have to go that route. Right. Um, but yes, we are just our opinion. There it is. And we usually find something to like about even like, mm. the objectionably worst movies. So. And I think the stance I take, and I think you probably agree with this is, is that there's really no wrong opinion on a movie as long no. as you can kind of justify where you're coming from, why you feel that way. 
Right. Give it a little substance to it. And it's easy to sit back and critique someone's hard work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, otherwise, uh, last year we had been doing kind of themed little blocks of films, but um, with the absence of Michael and some other stuff going on, we're kind of just going to freewheel it this year. So. Yeah. Pick whatever the hell we want. Um, and then maybe like that first year we had, we might just have accidental like themes and connections. Mm-hmm. That seems to happen. So It does indeed. But keep sending us suggestions. Yes. We always need and want more. Yes. Feed the beast. Feed the beast. <laughs> now, what have you been watching, my friend? All right. Um, do you have a few things to go over? I have a few things. I just kind of want a rapid shot. Okay. I've got, uh, I've got, to, I've got a lot because there was a gap where all I could do was like lay in one place. And so I, I chose to lay in front of a TV and mm-hmm, watched mm-hmm. a lot of movies. I don't blame you there. Um, but I think I'm going to break that up over the next few episodes. So, okay. uh, maybe I'll just talk about like two of them this time. Okay. Okay. Um, all right, then let me, I'll talk about one thing. So I finally, I'll talk about a couple of things actually. Yeah. But I finally Maybe. watched Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Oh, okay. And wow, <laughs> it is as bad as you have heard. Yeah, I, I didn't even bother to try to watch it, so. It's just, mm. it, you know what? The worst thing it is, is boring. It is so fucking dull. <laughs> I I fell asleep during a chase during like a so called wow. action sequence, and I didn't miss anything. <laughs> um, it, it, it the second half kind of comes alive a little bit because things are actually happening, but not enough, you know. And it mm. just it just it, man, I I don't I just don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who greenlights this shit. I yeah. really don't. And and honestly, I think Mangold's kind of a bit overrated, personally. Okay. Uh, like Logan, I didn't care for Logan at all. I, I didn't really either. I didn't even honest. finish it. <laughs> it just it was like wallowing in self pity and misery, and I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, this is what I want out of my you know superheroes. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, so I wasn't feeling that at all. And this is kind of the same too because. Mm. I mean, yeah, Jones is older, and you need to acknowledge that. But he's also like really fucking pathetic in this movie. You know, it's just whatever. It's, it should have been like he would subsume the role of his father from like the Last Crusade, right? And like, well, yeah, mm. that would have been a nice bookend, bookend to the thing. Sure. That would be if you were trying to mm-hmm. do something mm-hmm. meaningful, yeah, with the property, right? Um. Okay, so there's that. So, well, here's the follow-up question I got to ask then: yeah. is um, better or worse than Crystal Skull? You know, at least Crystal Skull was like <laughs> batshit crazy. Yeah, it's and, fun at least, and it wasn't boring. Mm-hmm. I didn't fall asleep during it. I think boring's the worst crime. Boring is yeah. the worst crime. Yeah, like this movie is like three hours long; has no fucking right to be. It's just another one of those overblown. I mean, I've seen so many full moon movies that have like no right to even be called a film, but like, <laughs> damn, least... if it wasn't entertaining for like an hour. <laughs> yeah, you know? at least it's not boring. Yeah. Um, another movie I saw recently, another big one that kind of overstated its welcome for me, Uh-oh. was uh, John Wick Chapter 4. Oh, I haven't seen it yet, but I want to. Yeah, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, I gave it two and a half stars. Mm. Again, it's three hours long, but it's one of those things where we've, and this is the fourth movie in, so it's the same formula. We, right. We've seen it a hundred times already, and it's starting to get pretty stale. Uh, the fight scenes go on too long. Are they cool? Yeah, but then it gets boring. <laughs> right. Um, 
Donnie, like three hours is pretty long for like an action film. It is. It's way too long. Donnie Yen's in it, and he's a lot of fun. As always. Uh, Scott Atkins is in it, and he fucking steals the movie. Love him. It comes alive when he's on screen, because he is having so much fun. Um, ah, I mean, you're going to watch it. If you watch all the John Wick movies, you're going to watch this one. And there is some great action, but it's just... It it strings the incredulity even more for me, because you have to meet this movie. You have to assume that half of the world's population's are assassins <laughs> and there are no police officers, you know, but even this makes that, mm-hmm. it just goes beyond the pale. It's just crazy. It's just nuts. See, I've always thought like with the original premise and the first one and stuff, it made me think a lot of vampire, the masquerade and how like the vampires have their own secret society that exists like among the humans and no one knows about what's going on. Sure. But they try to keep it, secret. which is a cool idea. But then you start playing vampire, the masquerade and people start doing all this crazy over the top shit in front of people in yeah. front of people. And you're like, would this really hold up though? I don't know. Right. Exactly. Yeah. This has the same problem for me. Anyway. Okay. So one more I'll go ahead and talk about. Uh, do you have anything to be positive about? I do. Okay. I'm about to get to that. Cool. I'm working up to it. All right. Um, a movie that came out last year, When Evil Lurks. Oh, this is on my watch list. Yeah. Yes. It was on a lot of top tens at the end of the year. It was. Uh, and there's a reason for that. It's because it's fucking awesome. Well, I'll tell you what. I would have watched it while I was sick. Um, but the Shutter app doesn't work right now on my really? viewing platform of choice. Yeah. Wow. Weird. Yeah, I have to uh, totally uninstall it and then reinstall it. And then after I watch something on there one time, if I go back again, it won't uh, load anything. Damn. Yeah, uh, ding on Shutter that for that. That sucks. Are you sure it's not a you problem? I'm, I'm pretty pretty confident, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is a Spanish film. It's written and directed by uh, Demian Rugna. hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, the If you don't know what it's about, it says... The blurb is, in a remote village, two brothers find a demon-infected man just about to give birth to evil itself. They decide to get rid of the body, only to end up unintentionally spreading chaos. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's... This is one of those movies where you just don't know what the fuck's going to happen. <laughs> and it's glorious. <laughs> the second half doesn't quite live up to the promise of the beginning, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But it's still far and above a lot of the recent horror films we've been seeing. Mm. So if you dig, there's some surprising gore. There's some nice atmospheric shots. It's, uh, there's some nice gloppy effects. I highly recommend it. Hmm. So, uh, that's all I'll share for now. I have some more for later. Okay. But uh, cool. How about you, man? What you uh, got? I guess I'll do three because it did come to my mind that I, I was asked by someone to elaborate my thoughts on um, Exorcist Believer, which I took Ooh. which I took a glancing blow at during our year end episode. I've been meaning to watch that. Um. So I guess just to expand on that, um, why I thought it was like a steaming pile, uh, to get my get my negativity out here, I guess right at the start, um. So you're making this like legacy sequel to a franchise, right? So partially you're beholden to the franchise, unless you're trying to be like, oh, I'm going to super subvert it or whatever. Right. Um, and the one problem is like, right, we've talked about like exorcism films are kind of played out. You got to do something fresh with them. Uh, we talked a little bit in our year-end episode about Talk to Me and how that like really mm. kind of took a fresh take on that. So good. Um, and, and then this came out in the same year and it kind of just really like painted by the numbers again. Um, but where it, where it really lost me was like, it does these things that, like, I don't know why they made these decisions, and it kind of, like, shits on the original film in a way. To me, it did, anyways. Uh, and so I guess I'll maybe just go through that a little bit. So it's like, 
Um, they bring in Reagan's mom, mm-hmm. um, Chris McNeil. Chris McNeil. Of course, you're going to know from the original film. Um, and it's like a weird trajectory for her character because she's like a demonology expert now. And it's sure. that, that already like stretches belief a lot. Um, and, and then they take these like pot shots at the original film where it's like they, they bring up this whole thing. And I don't know if this is like a weird like, oh, like virtue signaling woke thing. I don't really like to get into topics about that. But <laughs> the woke resist. It, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't know how else to explain it. But it's like she talks about how like oh, I wasn't allowed in the room when the exorcism happened because they were men and I was a woman and they are like keeping me out. And it was like, like a, it's supposed to be like, I guess like a patriarchy dig at like the Catholic church. But it's like, if you go back to the exorcist, that's not, you, you know. You can accuse the Catholic church of, of patriarchy. Yeah, obviously. For sure, yeah. That, there's so many examples. But, but also she wasn't in the room because she's not a fucking exorcist. Yeah. Like one of the core plots of the original exorcist is like, okay, we have to be like perfect on our faith. We have to be perfectly disciplined. Yeah. Any flaws right. or cracks in your, your your mentality, it will try to pull on. It will try to exploit. Yeah, does she know the litany and all that and stuff? And we have to know no. these exact litanies to say, to speak the right way, to right. do all the things. She also wasn't giving the spinal tap to her daughter because she's not a fucking doctor. <laughs> yeah. So that's like a dumb argument. And it's like a just dumb direction for her character. And then like, like they try to bring in all this stuff of like, uh, I guess like other ways of doing exorcisms. They bring in this dude who's like a, like a herbalist guy that does like natural remedies and stuff. And <laughs> it gets into this direction of like, well, we don't need the church, capital C. We can just like do it ourselves. Right. And it's, it's trying to be like a weird like community, like everyone comes together. Yeah. And then together they can do the exorcism and save them. And it's, it, it's a fucking religious horror film. Right. Right. And Specifically like, Catholic. Yeah. You know. And it's like, you gotta, I don't know, if you want to be critical, like, find a way to do that, but you also have to, like, keep to the rules of the story and, like, the the setting, I guess. Sure. Because, like, if this is all, like, valid, then that raises, like, all kinds of questions about the original film. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's just... Yeah, so if every religion if every religion works and they're all right, then how many different types of demons, how many different types of gods do you have out there? How many different rituals? Right, right. I, I don't know, because it's just, like... If you're going to the Exorcist, you want you you want that. That's yeah. that's what you want to see. Like I'm sure everyone that went to see the Pope's Exorcist, me included, we had a certain thing in mind we wanted to see. We wanted to see Russell Crowe yucking it up <laughs> as this like European dude going around right. doing Catholic church shit, and yeah. that that's what it was. Right. And it was like not a great movie, but it was passable. And so I don't know. This one's just like reaching for so many different things, and I feel like it didn't have an identity really. Yeah. Um, well, I wonder if the sequels are going to happen. This, this ta- it didn't make that much money. I don't know. How many times can he tank a film and they still let him make the another? Other one, the Halloween movies made money, though. That's the problem. <laughs> but they also probably didn't spend $400 million for the Halloween rights. Woo! Isn't that insane? That's a lot. They're okay. never going to recoup that. Well, let's move into some more positive things. Okay. I'm going to talk about some films from my... Um, 103 degree fever delirium <laughs> movie marathon. Okay. Um, so I sort of circled back for this and check out the uh, the Outwaters. Yeah, that's we, been on we my mentioned list. this because we yeah. were talking about it in reference to Skinema Rink when it came out. It got heavily compared to that, and for that reason, I did not watch it. <laughs> um, and so basically, this is like it's sort of found footagey. You know, it's like a dude with a camera filming stuff, and it's uh, it's just like four friends, and they kind of link up to go out into the Mojave Desert to shoot a music video. One of the friends is like an aspiring singer, musical artist, and she's like kind of cut her first record. 
and she's ready to like you know go go big on everything, put the music out there, get out there, cool, do her thing. And so the the main character he does a lot of like video stuff, does like little documentaries and things. And so he's like, hey, let's link up, let's go, and we'll we'll shoot your music video in the desert. It'll be super cool. It'll be fun. Pretty innocuous, right? Sure. What can go wrong? Uh, what can go wrong? And, and then they get out there, and it, it's what it does better than Skin of a Rink to me is that like it builds a narrative mm-hmm. before anything gets weird. So like the first quarter to half of the film is just like you're with these four people, and it's like the Blair Witch thing. You're getting to know them, who they are, their relationship, their interconnectedness. Um. There's little hints of like something weird going on sometimes. Like when they first get out into the desert, there's a bit of like just scenery chewing of like showing the location and them like goofing around and stuff. And and then you just get a few little weird things. Like they get to a spot where they have to go on like a dirt road and there's all these goats that are just like blocking the path mm-hmm. for no reason. And they can't get them to move out of the way. And it's like a weird little ominous thing. And then one time they're like in this area with some tall dunes and the dude like turns the camera and you see someone like up standing just on top of one of the sand dunes, like watching them. Okay. And it looks like he's got like some like a bat or something in his hand, and mm. a little weird, and yeah. don't really know what's going on with that. And every now and again, there's kind of like some weird, like I'm gonna say Christopher Nolan esque, like rumbling of just like a big like <laughs> going on. Um, and there's like they're in the you know they're so they're in that region, so there are like some hints of like earthquakes going on too. So it's a little bit like what's going on, we don't know. Uh, and then, like, after a night or two of, like, this plot progressing, it just goes fucking batshit insane. And it's, like, nighttime, and everything goes crazy. There's weird sounds, there's weird rumblings, it seems like they're being attacked by someone, mm-hmm. everybody gets separated, everybody gets lost. The lead, like, wakes up the next day, and he's just in the middle of the desert, and he's, like, naked and bloody. And there's these weird, like, fucking worm creatures that are on the ground just, like, writhing and slithering and, like, rushing at him that he's, like, running from. And Hmm. it becomes this, like, exceedingly weird, trippy out there thing where it kind of just cuts through clips of, like, he'll find one of the other people and they're naked and bloodied and they don't know what's going on and they're freaking out. And then he sees that person with, like, the weapon and they're chasing him and trying to get him. And, like, as it goes, it just gets weirder and trippier and more out there. I don't want to say too much more. Right. Um... And so that part is kind of like Skin of Marine because it is very like abstract. Mm-hmm. It gets very like a lot of the times it's just pitch black dark and you're just going off the soundscape of what you're hearing to try to piece together. And then you might get like a little flash of like you can see a little bit and then it goes away again. Right. Um, but I think it hit me different. Well, number one, I, again, I had a fever of 103. So right. I wonder like how much of it was maybe me just like mm-hmm. drifting away with the film. But um, but I felt like because I already like was introduced to these characters and I knew them. There was like more of an attachment there, and there was more of like, oh, I want to see what happens to them now and try to understand this. And it gets real weird, and it gets into like the other person with the weapon seems to be like a doppelganger of the main character. Hmm. And then there's times where he'll like stumble over a hill, and then down in the distance, he sees himself and the four friends, but it's them from like days ago going out hmm. when they first got to the desert. Okay. And he tries to like, talk to them and then it's like well is that the person that they saw up on the hill then and it gets gets very cerebral and weird right um so i quite liked it okay so it's better than skin of Marink is what you're definitely saying. better than skin of <laughs> it, it's it's a movie it has a plot um it's not an hour and a half of like an ikea catalog <laughs> um interesting worth a watch okay um, cool watch it through Screenbox. so okay points for them 
And then my last one, I, I had to squeeze this in because it's weird. I don't know if a lot of people know about it. Uh, this was a Tubi watch it's streaming on Tubi. And I, I heard about this from another podcast, so I will give credit where credit is due. I heard about this off of uh, Colors of the Dark. Okay. I think that's the Fangoria podcast. Yeah. Um, hosted by Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane, mm-hmm. two kind of people in the industry that I have a lot of respect for. Uh, they used to be co-hosts on the uh, Blumhouse Shockwaves podcast back in the day right. before that died out. Uh, and one of them recommended this, and I, I actually looked into it because it seemed interesting. So it's called Chompy and the Girls. Okay. It's from 2021, directed by Sky Brabant. First, I'm pretty sure it's a first feature. Kind of the hook that they pitched on this that got me interested was that um, it's all people that like recently graduated from film school. And they had kind of been told, like, hey... Uh, go in here, getting the degree. Ultimately, that's kind of worthless. If you really want to do something that matters, you should all just get together after you graduate. And you know, you know everyone now that's done like the different departments and have their specialties. And you should just fucking make a movie. Mm-hmm. And then that's your ticket to get further work. Sure. Um, so that's kind of what this is. It's kind of like a weird indie like student film. But it had like so much heart and so much like love put into it. So the premise is we've got this uh, main character we're introduced to named Jackson, uh, played by Christy St. John. I don't know that she's been in too much. She may be a few things. I see on IMDb she was in some wayward Amityville film. Oh, so. God. Um, but, man, she has such great personality and charisma in this. Yeah. And I hope that she gets to do more horror in the future. But um, So she's just like whatever. You're like 20-something, uh, not doing very good in her life. She's uh, kind of suicidal. She's had a lot of drama. She doesn't know her father because he left when she was little. And she's estranged from her mother. And she's got uh, she's kind of like addicted to cocaine, some other stuff. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of problems. And the film opens on her trying to kill herself. Okay. Tries to hang herself from a um, fan in mm-hmm. her apartment. Um, the rope was too long, so she hits the ground. <laughs> doesn't no. die. Mm. Um, and then she had been told by her mother, like who her father actually was. And so she tries to reach out to all these people, to, like go hang out or do something and just take her mind off things. And everybody else is busy or they just don't want anything to do with her. So on a weird fucking whim, she's just like, you know what? I'm going to contact my father and see if he wants to reconnect with me. So then you get introduced to the father, uh, Sam played by Steve Marvel. He also, I don't think, has done too much, but he was very good in this Is role. he one of the Marvels I've no. heard so much about? He is not one of the Marvels. He is a oh, Marvel. Okay. All right. Um, and he kind of just is this like middle-aged, like works in an office. Uh, him and his wife don't have a good relationship. They uh, kind of just do their own thing and meet up now and again for like dinner and stuff like that. Um, and he's a little goofy and a little weird. Like with the opening scene you meet him in is he ordered some like cool like black cowboy boots. That he think are gonna look, he thinks they're gonna look awesome, and he puts them on, and his wife's just like, "You look so stupid. Why are you wearing those?" <laughs> but yeah, then he just gets this text from Jackson, and it's like, "Hey, I'm your daughter. You had me with so and so. She got pregnant. And she never told you, and she just moved away. Um, I wonder if you would want to meet up and talk." And so you know, it goes through the whole thing of like he kind of doubts that and sure. not sure what to do and. Uh, eventually he decides that he's like, you know what? I'm going to go see her and talk to her. So they go to meet up in a park. And at this point, like you're, you're a little bit into the movie, right? Not mm-hmm. like super far, maybe 15, 20 minutes. And it seems like it's kind of just like a family drama or something. Okay. Right. Right. So they're in the park and they meet up and it's very awkward as you might expect. And, and they're kind of going back and forth. And 
uh, he has of course a lot of doubts of like this was really with her da 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 and um he gets like cold feet and he's like you know what I, I think this was a mistake I don't think I can do this right now and so she obviously gets upset because this was like her last person to reach out to mm-hmm and the whole time in the distance behind them in the park, there's been this little girl just standing there staring at them. And she's in like a pink jacket, blonde hair, and she's just staring at them. Mm-hmm. And you, you notice it once or twice and you don't really think about it. And then you see this guy start to come into the frame, mm-hmm. walking toward the little girl. And it's a dude, he's kind of shabby. He's in like a big trench coat. And um, he doesn't really look homeless maybe, but mm-hmm. it doesn't, something doesn't seem right about it. Well, him. a guy in a trench coat in a park with yeah. little girls is never yeah. good. Immediately you get your brain turning. You're like, what, what's, <laughs> what's going on in the background there? Right. Um, and then he gets up to the girl and she kind of looks at him with fright. And then he opens his mouth mm-hmm. and then his mouth gets a little longer mm-hmm. and then his mouth gets a little longer and it stops being normal and it becomes like a rubbery plastic, like mask effect they made where his mouth gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Until it is like fucking person sized. And then they kind of turn and look just in time to see this. And he lowers his head over her and devours her in one bite. Oh no. And then they're like, what the fuck just happened? Mm-hmm. And then he stands up and turns and sees them. Yeah. And sees that they saw. Okay. So he like, it's like it follows style, like beeline starts to walk toward them. Right. They flip the fuck out and run and separate and go their own separate ways. And the rest of the film is them just trying to figure out what the fuck is going on as this person, which they dubbed Chompy, is relentlessly pursuing them Hmm. and seemingly trying to eat them. Okay. And it gets into this weird thing where there's like clones of the little girl that are all over the town running around and they don't know why. Hmm. And it seems like Chompy is trying to devour them all, but they don't know why. And it becomes this crazy like one all night, up all night spectacle of... They're stuck together. They're trying to piece together what's going on and they're trying to save themselves. And in the course of doing that, it also like kind of furthers all of the like family drama stuff of like how they were estranged. Eventually his wife gets involved and then they kind of confront the fact that like they don't really have a relationship. Mm -hmm. And it was just really weird, really fucking weird. And I don't want to say anything about like, there is like a twist to it and expands more of like what's actually going on. Right. Um, but I feel like that's like kind of the core of the movie. And if you spoil that, that's like, okay, loses a little bit of the meaning, but like it was just really good and really fun and really, really like fresh. Nice. Nice. So you were not having a fever of 103 when you watched this. Right? No, no, no. This, okay. this was as I was coming out of things. Okay. Cause I was like seriously doubting your, um, you know, memory. That is literally the plot <laughs> of the film. It is fucking wild. Um, if you need a little more teaser to go in on this, there is one bit of star power they had, and that was that, um, so Chompy can't talk, but eventually they find out that he can, like, psychically speak to them. Okay. And he is voiced by Udo Kier. Oh, nice. I, I imagine he probably just did it for the hell of it, but... Well, um, if you can get Udo Kier, yeah. you get Udo Kier. So super fun, super crazy. Chompy and the girls, go watch it, go make it a thing. Um, really impressed. I hope all these people find work in the industry. All right. Very good. Right, so today we are talking about The Fisher King from 1991, directed by Terry Gilliam, suggested to us by Daniel. Thank you, man. 
Yep, indeed. You're local to us, so I'll just pass you a sticker the next time I see you. Awesome. Yeah, now you had not seen this before, correct? I had not, no. I vaguely knew of it just because it was a Robin Williams film. But right. um, Yeah. Yeah, I saw it back, I guess, when it came out on video. So I was still mm-hmm. a teenager. So I had dim recollections of it. <laughs> I didn't remember all of it. Yeah. But there is one scene that stuck in my head that I'll let you know that what that is when we get to it. And no, it is not Robin Williams naked. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he swings for the fences in this film. He does. Um, I'll hit you with the synopsis. Do it. A former radio DJ, suicidally despondent because of a terrible mistake he made, finds redemption in helping a deranged homeless man who is an unwitting victim of that mistake. Mm-hmm. Now, I looked at several synopsi. And that seemed the best one to me. Yeah. All the, all the other ones kind of told too much yeah, for that, a synopsis. That's good and concise. I like it. So what genre is this? So IMDb labels it as comedy, drama, fantasy. Yeah. I think that's all pretty yeah. spot on. That's what the uh, wiki has for it as well. And uh, yeah, I think those are mostly yeah fantasy, yeah. comedy, drama. Sure. That covers all the bases, I think. I don't think we really need to define any of those. I think those are all ones we've either touched on or are so self-evident that uh, right. you don't really need anything. Um, so I wanted to start with this maybe a little bit before we go into the plot. Sure. Um, a core of this film is our, our main character, Jack, uh, played by Jeff Bridges. And he's kind of modeled after that style of like the shock jock radio Howard, host. Howard Stern. Very Howard yeah. Stern. Um, to the point, actually, that Howard Stern was like vaguely in the mix on this. And I want to talk about this before we okay. got into the film. So, um, duh, duh, duh. Uh, when they were working on the production, they reached out to Howard Stern and they asked him for some of the tapes of his radio show. And they mm-hmm. were going to kind of use those as a template sure. for the show that Jack had. Um, he refused. And instead, he asked to come in and be a consultant on the film. Mm-hmm. He said, obviously, you're modeling this character after me. Hire me as a consultant, and I'll I'll make sure it's all perfect. Um, they didn't want to pay him. He had some ridiculous number that he I'm, wanted. I'm of sure course. he did. Um, so they were they declined, and then in return he said, "Well, then you can't have any of my tapes. Mm-hmm. Do it all yourself." Well, they did a pretty good job of capturing his essence, basically. Which I'm I've never been like. I, I'm not a fan of him. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, I, I, shock jock in general. <laughs> I, I just I have no patience for it. Um, he has another comment that he made about the film, which I'll, I'll, I'll pop in whenever we get to that scene. But okay. um, if you if you're like us and you're not really huge on him, it does not endear you to him any further. Right. So, right. Um, yeah, these guys were all the rage at that time. Yeah. Like late '80s, early '90s, when it was getting popular. I mean, '90s was the height of like the snarky. Yeah, snarky. Say, say whatever you want in your yeah, face. Yeah. Uh, wait a minute. Are, are we back to that now? <laughs> I mean, these guys basically just work on Fox News now. You know. Yeah. They're, they're considered uh, journalists now. <laughs> I guess that part's different. <laughs> yeah, we meet him at the very beginning. Doing yeah, a show. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And he's obnoxious. and The Jack Lucas show. Yeah, he's got all the stupid annoying sound bites he plays. He's got his uh, ponytail thing going mm-hmm. on. He's, he's like super narcissistic. Wearing all black. So he thinks he's like the hottest thing ever. Yeah, yeah. Um... And yeah, he's just doing like, he's taking callers and talking to people. Mm-hmm. It's like near the end of his show. Making fun of people. Yeah, every caller that comes in, he has some like smart ass remark to shoot back at him with. Yeah. Uh, but he gets this one caller who apparently is a frequent caller. Yeah, it's one of his regulars. Yeah. 
And he tries to talk to him about this beautiful woman that he met uh, at what Jack calls a yuppie restaurant. Yep. Um, and the guy's name's Edwin. Yeah, Edwin. That's what I was reaching for. Yeah. yeah. And so Jack's like, oh, you know, those fucking yuppies are the scum of the earth. You know, mm-hmm. they wouldn't they wouldn't piss on you if you're on fire. Fuck all of them. Yeah, he says there's like a, a social dating pool where it's like they'll, yuppies will only date yuppies. And mm-hmm. anyone else, it's just kind of like a joke or a laugh to them. Yeah, you got you got no chance with her. Um, and we get a little kind of the history between them, where it kind of suggests that like this Edwin guy has like pined after other people in the past. Yeah, and Jack has like put him up to asking them out as like a lark for the show. Yeah, and, and then like made down. fun of him afterwards. So, right. not the best place to be in in your life. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, but he pretty blatantly says like you know they're just worthless. Someone should just blow them all away. Right. And you can hear, like, the despondence in Edwin's voice. And he's just like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, he's just, like, <laughs> giving up. Uh, so then Jack's riding in his limo. And David Hyde Pierce is there. Yeah. Yay! Playing his agent. There's a lot. I forgot how good this cast was. It's, it's an interesting cast. Yeah, there's a lot of heavy hitters in this one. And you get near the end and John Delancey shows up. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't even have to strain <laughs> for a Star Trek reference in this one. It's right there. Um, yeah, so they're in their limo and there's like this homeless guy begging at the, at the, at the window of the limo and, uh, David Hyde Pierce is like, I don't have any change. Do you have anything? And the guy's like, like a few, and Jack says like a few quarters will matter. You know, Mm -hmm. fuck this guy. Yeah. He's real dismissive. Yeah. He's got some TV show deal. Yeah. It's it's like a big like network sitcom Mm -hmm. and they're Mm -hmm. wanting him to play the dad of the family. Yeah. So that night he's like going over his lines He's in his house. It's a nice, big, spacious, big kind of swanky penthouse. penthouse thing. Yeah. yeah, we see he's got a girlfriend. She's kind of like an aspiring artist. Yeah, um, he it really seems like she's more of just an object in the house. Yeah, younger than he is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, he's like he's like giving himself this mud bath treatment thing, yeah. going over the line. I like him going over the script though. Yeah. Um, because what there's like a catchphrase that the character's supposed to have. Yeah, it's basically Steve Martin's "Will excuse me," yeah. but it's. I forget exactly what it is, but it's something along those lines. And he goes through like all kinds of different variations of how to say it. Yeah. Uh, but the next day he sees a news story about Edwin, who he had talked to, um, killing seven people with a shotgun. Yep. At that very same restaurant. Dude walked up in there, blew people away, then killed himself. Yeah. And they're playing Jack's audio clip. Mm-hmm. In the newscast, like, okay, it's his fucking fault. He told him to go do this, and this psycho did it. Yeah. See, this is back when people were held accountable for <laughs> telling a group of people to do something, and when they actually yeah. do that thing, that person gets in trouble. Mm. Mm. It was a long time ago. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is an election year, so. <laughs> <laughs> so we see Jack's face kind of go white, and he's yeah. obviously upset. Um, by, by unlike this. Howard Stern, he actually feels remorse <laughs> for this. Because now here's the quote I'm going to drop on you. So uh, Stern dropped some commentary on um, this film after it mm-hmm. came out. Um, he said that because he turned them down, Jeff Bridges ended up working at the station where Stern worked. Uh, but it was with another DJ, so he could learn how to operate like the radio board. Sure. And he said that um, had he been a consultant, he would have improved the script because the idea that the DJ quits and becomes kind of homeless and downtrodden because a man killed someone over something he said on the air was really, really stupid. And if he was going to get that much publicity, he wouldn't stop being on the air. He would go on the air even more. 
even if he was on vacation, he would drop everything and go get to a mic so he could yeah, this, uh, chime in about it. Because he is devoid of any sort of <laughs> consciousness <laughs> and empathy. Yeah. I was like, wow, fuck this guy, man. Yeah. Fuck him. Uh, but yeah, we uh, hard cut for three years later. Yeah, three years later. Yep. And Jack is basically working at a video store run by the great Mercedes Rule. Yes, playing Anne, his new girlfriend, who I'm just going to come out and say it, is that she, she goes uh, above and beyond for Jack. She does. In this film. And Mercedes Rule goes above and beyond <laughs> for the role, too. Yeah. Because she got a Best Supporting uh, Actress Oscar for Which this. Fucking well-deserved, I'm going to say. Which, I mean, not to say she isn't great in this, because she is, mm-hmm. but I also think part of that is a we fucked up and didn't nominate you for Married to the Mob. Back in 1988. That's Did you ever true. see that one? Yeah, it's a good film. It's a great movie. She's fantastic. And she fucking steals that movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's great here. She deserves it. Yeah, but he basically is just drunk, depressed all the time. He's afraid of people knowing who he is and recognizing him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so he usually just sits in the back. With the pornos. With the pornos. And, and, and obviously, an unusually self-reverential Brazil poster hanging on the wall. <laughs> Did you catch that? Yeah. Uh, actually, there was a whole lot of uh, TriStar posters on the wall, I yeah. think, because it was the same distributor. And there was uh, like an Adventures of Baron Munchausen mm-hmm. cardboard cutout on the front of the store. So those are Terry Gilliam movies, in case you don't know. And it's not like Gilliam to reference himself like that, really. Yeah. But, eh, why not? It works. It's a video store. Sure. Um, and there's a great scene where uh, Anne asks him to actually go out on the floor and like work and do real do real work. Yeah, yeah. And they do this like crazy POV shot from Jack's point of view. It's like this fisheye lens. Yeah, it's like a fisheye lens. And like everyone's like up in his face and like shouting at him and asking him different <laughs> stuff. Yeah. And he gets in this hilarious back and forth with this annoying customer where she's like trying to describe the movie she wants off of like references to other people. Yeah, and she won't shut up. She won't take a <laughs> breath. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, he ends up giving her a porno. <laughs> yeah, because she, she also mentions the catchphrase that TV character he was supposed to play. Yeah. Which, you know, kind of sets him off. Yeah, she gives he gives him a porno called Ordinary Peepholes. <laughs> Great fucking title. Uh, but, you know, when he leaves and she's looking at the box, she's kind of digging it. Yeah. He, it was just funny because he's like, I know you'll like it. If you watch yeah. it. She's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I was less kind when I worked at the video store. Um, we had a porno section and... Um, I don't know if I've ever told this on air, but I guess, I guess 2024 is the year I'm going to share it. Uh, it was like a little back room, kind of like how it is in this film. And um, we, again, you know, where I grew up, very, you know, church on every corner, a lot of religious people, a lot of small community. Everyone knows everyone. Sure. Um, so we would get a lot of old dudes that would come in and they would want to rent a porno, but they wouldn't want to walk back in there. Yeah. Because they didn't want to be seen. Yeah. So they would just ask you to pull them one because we had them like under the desk because the back wall was like all the movies and then under the desk was the porn. Right, right. Um, and so they would say, oh, just grab me one and put it in a bag and bring it up for me. So one day, it was a slow day and I kind of went through all the pornos and was like reading the titles uh-huh. and I found this little catch um, and it was a series of, um, we'll see, it was, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, these are the titles. I'm just going to say them like they are. Uh, Sluts with Nuts and <laughs> Chicks with Dicks. So going forward into the future, when someone would come in and discreetly ask me for one, I had them pulled to the side to know where they were, and I would grab one and put it in the bag. And, and my crowning achievement of working at this video store was one time this dude came in, came in all the time, and it would always be on Sundays. It was like he would slip away after church and come sure. over and get a porno. Sure. And um, there was a lot of people in. Everybody was going crazy, written stuff. 
And so he's at the front of the line. He's got people lined up behind him. And he asks for, you know, movie, put it in the bag. I put it in the bag. I hand it to him. He peeks in the bag to read the title. And he says, uh, can you give me a different one? So I grabbed a different one, the other, the other series, put that in, gave it to him. Uh, can you get me a different one? And we went through this like four or five times. So I just said, okay, take volume one, take volume two, take volume three. <laughs> and I kept acting like I was grabbing randomly, but I wasn't. And then people were kind of peering and leaning over his shoulder. Oh, and they were like, you know, what's the holdup? And, and this dude was fucking sweating. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I was a terrible person back in the day. Yeah, but, apparently. You know, uh, I'm just going to say it. Own up to it, right? Yeah, I mean, if he doesn't have the balls to go in there yeah. and run a porno like a man. Right. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> okay, so so let's get back to Jack. But uh, also, there shouldn't be like a societal stigma against adults <laughs> doing something completely legal. Right, right. I, I guess that was my point in the end. But uh, right. But yeah. So yeah, Jack's. Did you ever get anybody time. like be like, "Oh, okay, thank you"? <laughs> I mean, some people just took it and didn't even look. I don't know if they watched it or not, but you know, maybe they discovered something new about themselves. I mean, they made multiple volumes, so somebody was getting them. <laughs> There's an audience. Yeah. We we had them for some reason. And we're not judging anyone's taste no. in pornography at all. I mean, we did a whole block on Roman pornos, so <laughs> right. We're we're not above such things. Um, but yeah, so he's having a terrible time. Mm-hmm. And later that night he and Anne are watching that sitcom that he was gonna be in. Mm-hmm. And he's drinking a lot. Yeah. He's got like a fifth of jack in his hand and he's just downing it. He's being shitty to Anne. Mm-hmm. Yep. And she's saying something about how she's had enough of his self-destructive bullshit. And so he goes out into the rainy night, drunk as hell. Yep. And he's contemplating suicide. He is. <laughs> it's funny, this little uh, rich kid comes up to him. Looks like a uh, little Bruce Wayne right before the uh, opera. <laughs> Calls him Mr. Bum. Yeah. And gives him a Pinocchio doll. Okay, so I... um. Oh, yeah, that's that's the little kid on the street. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Yeah, which that's weird. And then he's kind of like just wandering around with the Pinocchio doll. He's talking to, he's like quoting Nietzsche to it. Yeah, which is funny. Um, but this is the part I thought, like this is early on, I, this was like, it pulled me out of the film a little bit and it's maybe my one criticism, but mm-hmm. he ends up at like this trash heap near... It's like a bridge. A bridge. Underpass or something. Yeah, and, yeah. and so he, he's going full tilt. Like he decides he's going to tie some concrete blocks to his legs. Mm-hmm. He straps Pinocchio to him <laughs> and he's just going to hurl himself in the river and kill himself. Right. And so he's just about to jump, and then out of nowhere, this fucking jeep just rolls up on him. Yeah, and it's these random teenagers, mm-hmm. like maybe college kids, I guess. But and they're just like they're gonna kill him. They yeah, got cans of gasoline. Fucking kill him. They got the gasoline. They're like, oh, let's dump the gasoline on him. Yeah, yeah. Um, it just seemed like so out of left field. And I know it's New York, and I know he's in a bad part of town, but it's New York. It's the early nineties. Um, I mean, it, and it. You know, back then it really was sort of a more violent place. <laughs> and there was a lot of violence against the homeless, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there still is. Uh, but I will say a testament to the film. As it proceeded, I felt less put off by it. I, don't okay. know, I guess like the way they carry it, it smooths it over. There is that hint of the fantastical throughout mm-hmm. the movie. Yeah, I think when those elements come in more, it like justifies this part a little more. Yeah, because who shows up and saves him? None other but Robin Williams. As all would hope mm-hmm. in that time. And he's got a whole group of homeless people with him. Yeah, he's got like an armada. And he's done up in like this kind of like frumpy, kind of like Renaissance fair costume. Yeah. He's got like a trash can shield. And he's kind of speaking almost in a night- nightly manner. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he goes to town on these punks. Yeah. He's like kicking their ass. He wrecks them. Yeah. Uh, and they eventually run off. 
And then we see Jack hanging out with Robin Williams and all of his... We learn that his name is Perry. Yeah. With Perry and all of his uh, friends, and they're all laughing and singing and drinking, and you get some crazy Gilliam uh, camera work. and <laughs> Which there's some great stuff, too. When he first wanders out, when he's drunk, they mm-hmm. do this like weird angled shot of the street as he's walking down it. Yeah. And I was like, man, that's so gorgeous. Yeah. Um, which we should say the cinematographer... Well, Gilliam's movies are never anything but pretty. Is uh, Roger Pratt, so shout out to him on okay, that. Okay, nice. Uh, so after this night of debauchery... <laughs> oh, I have to mention the one scene. Yes. So uh, he has the gasoline on him, and they never really acknowledge that. And then while they're hanging out, drinking and stuff and being crazy, one of them lights a match, and it sparks a fire on his <laughs> oh, that's coat. Right. Yeah, and then yeah. he's like trying to stamp it out. <laughs> that's right. Really funny. But eventually he kind of just passes out. Yes. And then uh, they wake up in a boiler room. And this appears to be Perry's place. This is where he lives. But no worries. No Freddy in this boiler room. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, and I like uh, I like the storytelling here because it's very like economical of like we get hints of who Perry is. Right. Um, but they don't really give you everything yet. Yeah, like good. he sees this little like altar with a picture of a woman on it. Mm-hmm. And he and Jack goes to be like, what is, what is this? And then Perry's like, hey, you're you not can, allowed right yeah, there. You yeah, you can go in there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we learned that Perry, uh, he can see kind of the fairies, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. that's a great line with the um, the the dumb kids that are trying to kill people randomly. Where like whenever Perry first shows up, uh, yeah. I'm just quoting it. So There's some of that F word. Yeah, they, they drop the uh, the old F word on him and he's like, well, I'm not, but I, I do love fairies. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's just a great turnaround on that. Right, because he says he sees uh, little uh, fat flying people. Yeah. So, like cherubs or whatever you and they've tasked him with finding the Holy Grail. Yes, he says that he's a knight on a quest. A uh, quest for the Holy Grail. And he produces a magazine. It's like one of those like, you know, rich people of the time mm-hmm. sort of things. And he's already found out where it is. This rich guy owns it, and it's in the study of his house. Yep. There's a picture of it and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and he needs to get in there and steal it and rescue and obtain the Holy Grail. And he thinks that the uh, fairies have brought Jack to him, and he's the chosen one that will help him finish the quest. Right. Perry says that he can't get it because he is out there, but Jack can get it for him. Mm -hmm. Because he seems afraid of Jack. Yes. Uh, But Jack kind of brushes him off, and he leaves Perry with the Pinocchio doll. (laughs) And there's a man up there who turns out to be the superintendent. Mm -hmm. And he's asking Jack, like, what are you doing down there? And, uh... We get a little backstory about yeah, Perry. Yeah, we do. Yeah. And it, it uh, rocks Jack's world. It does, because <laughs> the superintendent tells him that Perry, uh, that his wife was killed by a psycho with a shotgun in a restaurant a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that racks Jack even more. And we learned that before that, he was a college professor, and they they rented an apartment at the building, mm-hmm. and he was happily married. They say, you know, his wife was really beautiful, great person. Yep. Um, and then he kind of went into like a catatonic state after the murder. And when he got released, he forgot everything about who he was. And he was this Perry personality. They kind of dropped him off back at the apartment and feeling sorry for him. The superintendent kind of just lets him live in the basement for free. Right. He doesn't really know what else he can do to help him. Mm -hmm. Very sad. It is. Uh, so later on, he's talking to Ann in the back room of the video store where the porn is. Saying that he was attacked by people. 
Well, it's funny because first Anne thinks he was like out cheating or something. Right, right. Yeah. He's like, no, I was attacked. And there's this dude, a dude comes in to look at the porn while they're having a conversation. <laughs> and uh, Anne goes up there and just hands him a movie. <laughs> and it's called Creamer versus Creamer. <laughs> it's funny. She's like, just pick one. And he's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> and he's asking later, later on, he's asking Anne if she knows what the Holy Grail is. And she has this line where she thinks that... Uh, she thinks that a man was made in the devil's image. Oh, I pulled the quote because I actually thought it was really cool. Okay, yeah, go for uh, it. So she's talking about how she had a religious upbringing and stuff, and that you know she doesn't really know where she is now, but she does think there's a God. Um, and she says, I don't believe that God made men in his image, because most of the shit that happens is because of men. No, I think man was made in the devil's image, and women were created out of God, because after all, women can have babies, which is kind of like creating, and which also accounts for the fact that women are so attracted to men. Because let's face it, the devil is a hell of a lot more interesting. I've slept with some saints in my day, and believe me, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so the whole point in life, the whole point in life, I think, is for men and women to get married so that God and the devil can get together and work it out. Not that we have to get married or anything, God forbid. Because <laughs> right, yeah. she is much more in love with Jack. Oh, yeah. Than Jack's kind of absorbed in himself. Yeah. She, she's way too good for him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but... Yeah, I guess this conversation kind of turns her on because she wants to do it. And he's, yeah. he's trying to put her off because he's still hurting from the beat up and everything. <laughs> yeah. But... He has a cut on his lip, so every time she kisses him, he's like, oh. Yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> no one can resist Mercedes' rules. So. No. He can't. <laughs> yeah, and that's when he goes back to the boiler room and we get that info dump mm-hmm. uh, from the super saying that Perry's real name was Henry Sagan and he taught at... Uh, Local college. Which notably, he gets to rifle through some of his like objects mm-hmm. the superintendent kept. And we see there was like a little like published paper speechy kind of thing about the Fisher King. Yeah, it looks like a script. Yeah. Um, Which we'll get more on that later. Yes. So later that night, Jack's listening to old tapes of his show. And he's going through clippings of a tragedy. And he's telling Anne that he's cursed. And he wishes he could just pay the fine and go home. Yeah. He feels like he needs to atone for what he did. Mm-hmm. Which there's even a scene where he says, because I, I killed all those people. And then Anne's like, you didn't kill those people. Yeah. But that's how it feels to him. Sure. That's that's the way a person with a conscience would react. Yeah. You know. When you, when you have empathy for other mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so Jack goes looking for Perry. He's getting directions from other of the homeless guys. And he finds him on sitting on top of a car talking to God, maybe. Mm-hmm. But Perry is more interested in the girl that just left this building he's hanging out in front of. Yep. And this is where we meet one of our other central characters. Yeah, we turn out her name is Lydia, we find later on. Yes. Played by the great Amanda Plummer. She is wonderful as this character. Yeah, another great bit of casting in this movie. Mm-hmm. And she's kind of this like mousy sort of They're very awkward. Frazzled. She's like yeah. dropping things and, and she has all these quirky things that like Perry finds endearing where it's like she comes out of like the revolving door. And she usually gets like stuck and has to go back through again because yeah, yeah. everybody's pushing. I think it's what some people might call adorkable now, yeah. but yeah. more severe than that. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like I think she's got like some actual issues. <laughs> Most of the characters in this film do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so she always the... goes to this Chinese restaurant and she likes the dumplings, but she's not good with the chopsticks, so <laughs> yeah, she drops yeah. them all the time. There's a funny scene where they're watching her through the window of the restaurant, <laughs> but there's a couple right in front of them. Yeah. And it's funny because Perry doesn't care, but then Jack loses it and he's like, what? We're watching here. We're watching yeah, through the we're window. We're through the window. What? 
I love that scene. Um, and so Jack tries to give Perry money. Mm-hmm. Gives him 50 bucks. Mm-hmm. And uh, Perry's kind of like, whatever. And he's like, well, here's another 20. Yeah. He's like, oh, you're so nice. So let's go. I'll buy you lunch. But Jack says he has to go back to work. And he's walking away and he sees Perry giving the money to somebody else, to another homeless person. Yeah, I like that that's homeless guy because he's like, he clearly was like a stock market broker. So he's on the phone <laughs> and he's like, sell, sell, yeah, he's sell, on this like, sell. Uh, just this broken, unattached phone. Yeah. And he gives him the money and he starts saying, bye, bye, bye. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not funny, but it is. Funny. It is funny. Uh, kind of the one of the conundrums of this film. Yeah. Uh, so Jack goes back and it's like, what the hell, man? And Perry says, well, what am I going to do with that money? You know? Mm. He's like, I know it can help him. So so this isn't going to be so easy as Jack just paying Perry off. He's, he's not going to clean his conscience. Mm-hmm. And again, Perry brings up, you know, I want your help to go obtain the Holy Grail. Yeah. So we cut to the outside of that rich dude's house. I think it's like Langdon Carmichael, his mm-hmm. name is. And it looks like a castle. Yeah. Literally looks like a castle. It's like turrets and everything. <laughs> I would like to live there. Have epic D and D games. It'd be amazing. It'd be fun. Um, so yeah, that's the guy with the guy from the magazine where he lives, and the grill's inside there. And Jack's kind of like, "Hey, man, this is impossible. There's no way you're gonna break in there." Yeah. And actually get out with it. And Perry's kind of touched by that. It's like, "Oh, you think I'm in danger, and you're trying to protect me? That's very nice of you." <laughs> and man, Rob, Robin Williams just like does not miss a beat in this the whole time. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I mean, he was always great. <laughs> um, so Jack's like trying to tell Perry what his real name is. Mm-hmm. And it trips him out. Yeah, he yeah. starts freaking out, convulsing. And he's like seeing this great red knight. Like yes, this flame. is where we get the red knight. And it is fucking amazing. Yeah, it, this is some like primo Terry Gilliam imagery <laughs> here. Uh, I've got some notes on the the old red knight here. Cause Do it. They did some cool stuff. So uh, bu- 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 let me find it. I'm going to be on the next page. Yeah, 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 so the costume designer, uh, Beatrix Aruna Pastor, the initial concept for the Red Knight was a suit of armor that would be made from found objects. Kind of more implying like the way Perry dresses himself up, mm-hmm. like you know, car parts and industrial waste. Uh, but Terry Gilliam wanted something that was a little more accurate to the medieval, medieval era and something like to him it was like signifying that this isn't like a real thing. This is like something of Perry's mind that's plaguing him. Right. And um, so the final concept was meant to suggest the knight was burning from the inside out. And that's why they have like the smoke constantly pouring out of him. And then eventually like the helmet gouts flames. Um, So the costume was fashioned out of latex over leather with urethane. And the helmet was cast in aluminum and fireproofed. The pennants on the armor were made from Chinese silk, fishing poles, and dune buggy antenna. The suit weighed approximately 125 to 150 pounds and was entirely self-contained. It was padded to protect the stuntman, Chris Howell, in the event there was a f- fall, and it could have ice packs placed inside to keep him cool whenever they were running the fire. Hmm. Uh, fire and smoke effects were controlled by Howell in buttons that were placed in the knight's lance. Propane tanks fueling the helmet's fire uh, bursts were hidden in the horse's saddle, along with oxygen tanks for Howell's breathing apparatus, hidden in the helmet with a two-way radio so he could communicate with them. Awesome. Fucking elaborate. Nowadays, that would just be shitty CG. Yeah, it would be. And it would look like <laughs> shit, and it would be worthless. Uh-huh. And then, let's not forget, he's on an actual horse. They had two Percheron circus horses, Lightning and Goliath, to act as the mount. One was used exclusively for the galloping scenes, and then one was used for the scenes of him rearing up 
nice. and being menacing. Yeah, it looks great. It's very really amazing. Yeah. And the real like striking thing about him is he has these like kind of appendage things that trail yeah, off like of these, him. These red banners. Yeah. That are kind of like slashed. But they also kind of look like viscera. Uh-huh. Look very Japanese to me. Um, I'll just bring it up now, I guess. What we later kind of realize is this is sort of a a mental block of him of like not wanting to accept mm-hmm. the death of his wife. And the way the knight is fashioned is literally the moment when he sees her get hit with the shotgun and like her head fucking explodes and yeah. sprays everywhere. Right. Um, which we do see later. We'll talk about that scene. But yes. Because um, that's the scene I remember when I was a teenager. Is that the scene? It yeah. Is. It, it Dude, it's fucking brutal it and they is. don't hold back anything. But yeah, it, I think that's so clever that to design the night that way as like a reflection of his own psychosis mm-hmm. and the fact that he can't like accept what happened. Yeah, that's great. And the, that's like, that's the thing is like anytime he tries to complete this quest, because it seems like if he completed the quest, that would somehow like fix him or save him or like bring him out of this. Right. But when he reaches that point, the knight appears to like run him away. But Perry thinks that the knight is afraid of Jack. Yes. Because the knight starts running away, galloping away. So he starts giving chase and Jack starts <laughs> running after Perry like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. And they chase it in the Central Park. And eventually it's gone. Which I love it too because he's like, we almost had him, Jack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we had had horses, we would have been on his ass. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yep. And he finds Perry sitting on this large rock looking at the New York skyline. And yeah, that's when Perry tells him about the Red Knight. Mm-hmm. But they hear a cry for help. They do. There, there seems to be a maiden in trouble. Mm-hmm. And Perry sees it as kind of a sign. And this reminded me so <laughs> lot of so much of Gilliam's uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Right. Like with Lancelot looking for yeah, a yeah. sign. <laughs> I, I couldn't help but giggle to myself. <laughs> Uh, so they find a man who's kind of like half buried in the yeah. ground and the people are riding horses and they've hit him. They've like, well, yep. you know, they have trod upon him. Um, but he, he, he wanted this. He said he was wanting a debutante on a horse to ride over him <laughs> and he's bleeding. So they decided to help him and they, they pick him up and they take him to the hospital. Which they never named this guy, but it's uh, played by Michael Jetter. And he's amazing. He's amazing. Yes, yeah. he is so um, good. We learn that he's a cabaret singer. Yeah, is what he what he yeah. his profession by trade. Mm-hmm. And he is just lovely. Yeah, he steals every scene he's in. He steals. Uh, so the hospital they take him to is completely dystopian. It's like yeah, it's pure Terry Gilliam. <laughs> you know, it's just like nightmarish. Uh, Tiffany watched this with me, and she kind of had a flip out of that part. She was like. Oh, they've got intake and social services in the same spot. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Because you get people who are like the walking wounded sitting here waiting for help, and obvious mental patients just sitting there drooling and things like that. But it's it's funny because now that he's hung out with Perry a little bit, Jack's kind of like dropping his like I'm a badass attitude. Yeah, yeah he's actually comforting the cabaret singer. Yeah, he has him stuff. in his lap, and he's like kind of cradling him. <laughs> yeah, and like because they keep saying, I, "I don't want to be here. I want to go somewhere else." And Jack's like, "Well, where do you want to go? Maybe we can go." And he says, "I want to go to Venice, like Catherine Hepburn." <laughs> and he says he wishes he could be her. And and Perry's trying to get everyone in there to start singing along with him. Yeah, he has a song that he likes to uh, sing a lot. Uh, yeah, it's that New York song. I forget what it was called. I like New York in June. Yeah, that's it. How New York in June. You? That's it. Yeah, that's it. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, 
And then there's this nice little conversation because, yeah, he's still basically cradling <laughs> this cabaret singer. And Jack asks him, did you lose your mind all of a sudden or a little bit at a time? And he says that he used to be a singer, you know, cabarets and dinner theater and stuff like that. And then kind of started wondering what it was all about. And he also has this really effective line. Yeah. Because there's a beat and he says, oh, and I also had to watch all my friends die. Yeah. So an obvious like AIDS allusion epidemic. to AIDS. Yeah. Right. Because back then in the eighties, it was it was a gay disease, mm-hmm. and no one gave a shit. Yep. Ugh. Yeah. Mm. So that was like it's one of those times in this movie where it gets very serious. Yeah, it really hits you hard, yeah. and you can tell it kind of you know strikes a chord with Jack too. Because mm-hmm. I think there's a part of it that's like it's a self reflection thing, and it's like these were the people that he just like completely disregarded, right. saw them as worthless trash. Yep. yep. And now he's realizing, like, these are people, they yeah, have stories. Too. They need help, and, you know, yeah. they deserve as much respect as anyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the next scene is that they're at the bus depot, and they're waiting for the girl that Perry's been following, for Lydia. Yep, because she always comes through. Mm-hmm. And Jack has a conversation with a disabled veteran, played by Tom Waits, yeah. the musician. Great little uh, cameo. Yeah, I heard his voice, so I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> Which I love what he says, though. Because mm-hmm. a lady comes by and she kind of tosses a coin in his cup, and then this other dude comes by and he tosses it like by the wheelchair. Yeah. And then Jack's like, "Man, that guy's an asshole. He didn't even look at you." And yeah. then he's kind of like, "Well, that's what's why they pay me, so they don't have to look at me. They don't have to think about right. me." And they, maybe they feel a little bit better, like, "Oh, I did something. I gave you know, somebody a little bit of money." Yeah. And he tells this story of like, you know, that guy. He probably works like a nine to five every day. Goes in, goes out, hates his life. What is it about? He's talking about like he one day his boss asks him to come in and kiss his ass. Yeah, and he thinks about taking the scissors and plunging it into him and killing him. But at the end of the day, he just puckers up and kisses his ass, mm-hmm. yeah. and then comes by and tosses in a coin at him mm-hmm. to not have to think about anything else. So eventually, Perry sees Liddy in the crowd, and, and this this scene is gorgeous. Yeah, it's a great scene because uh, in his mind, everyone begins the waltz. Yeah, it's this huge crowd. It's actually at the, I forget the name of the terminal, but it's Grand huge. Central Station. There you go. Thank you. Because I have a fun note about this. Yeah. Uh, this scene was an idea that Gilliam came up with when they were about to shoot a small and scripted sequence at the location. Uh, Gilliam said, the script had a scene in Grand Central Station where Jeff Bridges' character is kind of is in kind of a mood and he hears this poor black woman singing a beautiful song and he stops in the rush of his life and he assesses his situation. And I thought that was fine. And we were in Grand Central Station wrecking it. And I looked down from this raised area and I said, wouldn't it be nice in the middle of this rush hour? Because people were just running past each other. If as they passed somebody, they glanced left or right, fell in love, and they just started waltzing together. I thought, wouldn't that be a wonderful scene? And then that's what we ended up shooting. Yeah. And it's, it is nice. And, and to do this scene, uh, the main hall of the terminal was shut down from 8 p.m. until the first commuter trains arrived at 5.30 in the morning. Uh, lighting effects outside of the large terminal windows made it seem like it was in the afternoon, like mm. 5 p.m. or so. And they kept those lights on all night. Uh, over 400 extras waltzed around the mirror ball topped information booth again and again throughout the night as they just kept getting footage and coverage of this. Uh, and then now a lot of time on New Year's, an orchestra will show up there and play a waltz yeah. for people to dance to. That's fun. I don't know if that's still going on, but that's pretty cool, I thought. Yeah. So as everyone is waltzing, he's following Lydia, and they're going yeah. in between all the dancing couples and everything. 
But eventually, kind of reality returns and she disappears into the crowd. Yeah, I love how it shifts because sometimes it goes back to Jack's perspective and it's just the crowd, big, mm-hmm. huge crowd, and they're muscling through it. But then you'll go back to like Perry's point of view. And yeah, it's just this very beautiful, very serene. Everyone's like pairing up and waltzing. And he is like maybe one or two people behind Lydia, about to reach her, but never quite. Mm-hmm. And then we get a little scene with Anne. You think that she's arguing with Jack, but he's not even there. Yeah. She, like, she's made dinner and he hasn't showed up and she's just sort of like <laughs> bitching to him in absentia. <laughs> yeah. So he's obviously ignoring her. Yeah. Putting all his focus on Perry. And she doesn't even at this point really quite know what he's up to. Right. Because he hasn't like dealt her in on the plan. Yeah. Uh, so later that night, Jack and Perry are in Central Park. And Jack's like, this is dangerous. We're going to get killed out here. <laughs> And Perry asks if he's ever cloud-bursted. Yeah. Which apparently is breaking clouds apart with your mind, but you have to be naked. Yep, got to lay naked and look at the clouds, and you can break them apart with your mind. Yeah, so William starts undressing and dancing and (laughs) having a great time. And Jack's like, "Uh, you're you're fucking crazy, I'm out of here. It starts to walk away, but there's kind of a hard cut, and he's laying next to him. Yeah. Still clothed. He's not naked, too. Yeah, he won't go the whole way with him yet, but... Uh, and this is where we get the whole like Fisher King story, isn't it? Yes, it yeah. is. Which I have it. Okay. Shall, shall I subject us to it? Uh, please do. Probably important for the story. So. Yes. Um, as Perry explains, it begins with the king as a boy, having to spend the night alone in the forest to prove his courage so he can become king. Now, while he's spending the night alone, he's visited by a sacred vision. Out of the fire appears the Holy Grail, the symbol of God's divine grace. And a voice says to the boy, you shall be the keeper of the grail so that it may heal the hearts of men. But the boy was blinded by greater visions of life filled with power and glory and beauty. And in this state of radical amazement, he felt for a brief moment not like a boy, but invincible, like God. So he reached into the fire to take the grail, and the grail vanished, leaving him with his hand in the fire to be terribly wounded. Now as the boy grew older, his wound grew deeper, until one day life for him lost its reason. He had no faith in any man, not even himself. He couldn't love or feel loved. He was sick with experience, which I love that line. Yeah. Uh, He began to die. One day, a fool wandered into the castle and found the king alone. And being a fool, he was simple-minded. He didn't see a king. He only saw a man alone and in pain. And he asked the king, What ails you, friend? And the king replied, I'm thirsty. I need some water to cool my throat. So the fool took a cup from beside his bed, filled it with water, and handed it to the king. As the king began to drink, he realized his wound was healed. He looked in his hands, and there was the Holy Grail, that which he had sought for all his life. And he turned to the fool, and he said with amazement, How can you find that which my brightest and bravest could not? And the fool replied, I don't know. I only knew that you were thirsty. Yeah, it's a great monologue, and I'm pretty sure it's one or two, right? Yeah, I don't remember I'm, any cuts. I don't remember any cuts, yeah. Oh. Uh, really, really powerful, and it kind of like, and again, it's probably why it's the title of the film, mm-hmm. it parallels their situation. Right. And Perry says something like he he thought he thought I heard a professor tell that story at Hunter College. Yeah. And then his mind <laughs> you, you see something clicking in his mind and he starts to see the red knight again. Mm-hmm. And Jack asks why he's never asked that girl out, Lydia, the one he's been pretty much stalking. And he's like, I, I could never. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, I have to earn her. I have to be worthy. I have to finish my quest first. Yeah. And he tells Perry that a good woman can keep you going. 
And Perry asks if that's what it's like with his girlfriend. And Jack's like, oh, yeah, sure. But Perry knows he's, you know, he's lying. Which the sad thing is, that is exactly what it is. Yeah, right. He just, he's just too dumb to see it. Yeah, too dumb to see it. So this is where Jack kind of reaches, like, this is what I need to do with Perry. Is I need to get him to get yep. hooked up with Lydia. Yep. That will make his life better. That will probably, like, pull him out of what he's in. Yep. I can, like, have saved him in a way, mm-hmm. and that will sort of atone for what I did. Right. Because I feel responsible. And he's trying to, like, try to track her down on the phone, and uh, Anne comes in, and he keeps, he keeps saying the name Lydia, and he's like, who's Lydia? Who's Lydia? And she's, like, <laughs> trying to get the phone away from him, trying to kick his ass. And uh, he, he finally explains to him that, you know, it's someone Perry's. Yeah. He gives her the whole story of what's been going on. And it's yeah. funny because she's, like, you can tell it, like, warms her heart a little bit, what mm-hmm. he's doing. Yeah. And so she decides to help him. Yep, she sure does. And so the scheme they come up with is that they're going to pretend that Lydia won a contest for their video store to get a free membership. Yep, yep. And that will lure her to the store, and they can kind of set up a meeting between her and Perry. Yeah, and there's this great bit where he's calling her at work, and he's using his uh, tape deck. Yeah, to do like the radio show. Yeah, so he's, he's using the skills he learned <laughs> for the scene. Um, and Amanda Plummer's great on there than the line, just all jittery, and she's like, She's so mistrusting of this guy. Yes. She's like, I've never won anything. How did you get my name? Was there like a drawing? She's like, I don't even have a VCR. <laughs> and he's like, oh, we'll, we'll give you a free one until you can get your own. And then Anne's like, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, but she kind of rebuffs him. she, yeah, she hangs up yeah. on him. And so he realizes he's got to escalate the plan. Yeah, yeah. In the, in the best <laughs> way possible. He employs the cabaret singer... Uh, to he's, he's got a bunch of balloons and sends her into his office and he goes in there and he starts singing this song about how she has a free one of free membership at, at video spots <laughs> and it is amazing he gets up on a table yeah he's dancing around and he's a great singer too yeah. he sounds wonderful dude he slays it man it's yeah. fucking awesome it's this it's it's a bravura performance <laughs> <laughs> and I'll also this cubicle land place she's working is very reminiscent of like some of the dystopian imagery in Brazil too. Yeah, very much so. That's so crushing, just (laughs) boring. But I love how the cabaret singer comes in and he's got like the big jacket on. The only bright thing in the whole place. And then like, as he's about to start, he throws it off and he just tosses (laughs) it in the arms of one of the dudes that's there. Yeah. It's like, Hey, hold this. He's amazing. (laughs) So we cut to the video store Jack is having Perry pose as a video store worker. Yeah, they're trying to clean him up. and puts a... Uh, Maybe she should have given him a shower first. Like I guess he's still like, Yeah, dirty. she puts an air freshener around his neck. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Lydia comes in, and she's awkward, and Perry's just as bad. Like, Lydia's suspicious. Mm-hmm. You know, she knows something's up. There's some catch to this. And on first blush, Anne kind of doesn't like her either. No. So they're kind of back and forth at each other a lot. Yeah, yeah. And then Jack's just trying to smooth everything over right. as best he can. Right. And uh, Perry's trying to find a movie for her. She's like, I like musicals. I like Ethel Merman. Which they do a funny bit where um, she we, they set up that she's clumsy and she knocks stuff over all the time. Oh, so those, she, those crappy shelves they had, they were asking <laughs> to get shit knocked so over. So she knocks over a bunch of tape boxes and then he knocks over some too so she's not embarrassed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we worked at video stores. What the hell's yeah. that shit? No, it's not secure. No one does that. Yeah, it's great how Mercedes rule she plays it. She's like barely hiding her disdain for this woman. Uh, but Lydia notices Anne's nails. Yeah. And really digs them. 
Says so that she would love to get her nails done sometime. Yeah, and Jack's like, oh, well, Anne could do that for you. <laughs> yeah, we learned that before the video store, Anne actually worked at a salon. Mm-hmm. So they arrange this thing where Lydia's going to come over that night, and Anne's going to do her nails. Which I love the setup for it, too, because she's like, how much? And then Anne's like, $40? Yeah. And then she like is talking to herself about, like, oh, can I afford this? Is yeah, this you, you can see her calculating everything <laughs> in her head. Yeah. $40. And Jack thinks that's an exorbitant amount, but it was probably spot on. Yeah. You know, that shit's not, not cheap. <laughs> <laughs> so later on, uh, Perry is eating at their table. Like and serving this, him, yeah. giving him some food. And he keeps making excuses to look at her boobs. <laughs> <laughs> and Jack's trying to get this suit ready for him. And Perry's making this big show of what a good woman Anne is. Yeah, he's like, you are just an amazing woman cooking uh-huh. like this. And, and all like, the food's great. He's and- like, that's it. Let's fuck. <laughs> yeah. He was like, you, you, he's like, you're too great a woman to just go to waste. Yeah. And, and never, never be married and have kids. And, and he's taking this as far as he can. And Jack finally <laughs> comes up there and he's like, Oh, finally, you know, you're paying attention. Yeah. That's the funny thing is it kind of feels like he was just doing it to try to get a rise oh, out of Jack. Yeah. And then, completely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, Lydia gets to Anne's as Jack's trying to get Perry cleaned up. He's giving him that mud treatment thing he was doing for himself mm-hmm. at the beginning of the movie. I like how he's like stapling the suit too to make it fit. <laughs> yeah, he's doing alterations with the staple. Yeah. And uh, Amanda Plummer is drinking a shot of tequila through a straw. <laughs> Which this is a great scene because like Anne and Lydia make friends. Yeah, they actually way. start talking. Yeah. They actually like start to connect. Yeah. And this. we learn a little bit more about Lydia. About uh, she's got like an overbearing mother, and mm-hmm. never every, really had a romance. Never had a romance. Everyone's worried about when she's going to get married and when she's going to settle down. And um, she talks about like going to the office parties, and she has trouble like interacting with people. Which this mm-hmm. kind of struck me a little bit too, because she said that I never know like how to start a conversation. And then when it started, I never know when they're supposed to be the ending. <laughs> Hit a little close to home for you, <laughs> a little bit maybe, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so then um, Jack and Perry get there, and there's a funny bit because they walk in on Anne and Lydia like on the ground, like laughing, and they're drunk out for us. Oh, but the last thing that, that Anne tells her before they come back, I love it because it was like uh, Lydia says that she doesn't really have like a personality that can appeal to people or anything, and she's mm-hmm. like, "Well, I think you have a personality. It's that you're a bitch." Yeah, yeah, you could be a bitch. And they just start laughing together. Yeah. <laughs> and when Jack and Perry come in, there's this funny bit where Lydia is like trying to crawl away from them. Yeah. She's embarrassed. Yeah. Uh, so they all go out to dinner. Yeah, which takes a little fighting by Jack to make happen. But mm-hmm. And along the way, they're having a talk, and Jack's asking her questions, and Lydia's kind of putting down where she works. It's not interesting. And she says they mostly publish trashy romance novels. <laughs> but Jack says there's nothing trashy about romance. Well, Perry. Perry. Yeah. Perry says there's nothing yeah, trashy about He fucking romance. turns on the charm, dude. Yeah, he's doing great. He says, you find great things in the trash. And he produces this little, like, heart-shaped <laughs> chair that he made for her out of this discarded wire. <laughs> so they're both equally weird and awkward at dinner. There's a nice little montage. Yeah, it's weird because it's in, like, a complimentary way. Yeah, yeah. And it's even got screen wipes, which I appreciate. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a fun moment. Mm-hmm. Which I love. They, like, uh, they, they drop the dumplings and then they, like, do like soccer back and forth, kicking yeah, at each yeah. other with awkward, those chopsticks. Re- awkward rearranging of all the dishes. They've got stuff. like the spinny table thing. Yeah. 
At one, at one point, Perry starts singing uh, Lydia, the Tattooed Lady yeah. song from the Marx Brothers movie uh, at the circus. <laughs> Which I love. There's a scene where they have a big plate of noodles, and Lydia's trying to get them. And it goes on like way too long, and then Anne's like, Jack, help her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling a lot of this stuff was improvised. Especially oh, Williams there. Yeah. It's so fun. Yeah. Uh, but you can tell, yeah, they really, really hit it off. Hit it off. Uh, so Jack and Anne are going back to their place and there's a nice scene where he says that you did a good thing and she's proud of him. Mm-hmm. They're getting along better. He, he thanks her for helping him and supporting yeah. him. Uh, and on the way, uh, Perry's escorting Lydia back to her place and she has this monologue about how they'll get back to her place. He'll come upstairs for yeah. coffee. He's like, I don't drink coffee. <laughs> and they'll start talking more, maybe have a little bit of liquor, have sex. In the morning, he'll make excuses and leave early. Mm-hmm. And eventually he won't call her back or anything. And then there'll be just another... Kind of feels like maybe it's a thing that's happened to her a few times. Mm-hmm. 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 And then, man, he counters it with his own monologue. Yeah. He, yeah, it's fire, man. Yeah. Yeah, so it's never his intention to go upstairs. And he, he says that he loves her and he's always loved her. And, I mean, he admits that he's been stalking her. Yeah. Which doesn't, but, doesn't freak Lydia out. Because he talks about, like, all the things he thinks about her that are, like, endearing and charming. Yeah. This could have gone one of two ways. Either Lydia freaks out <laughs> yeah. and like, oh my God, you've been stalking me. Go away. Mm-hmm. But she's charmed by it. But he talks about how like he doesn't want to just go to like sleeping, which he says a funny line where he's like, what is I have a heart on for you the size of Florida. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is a funny like little callback thing because when we see Jack's life at the start and he's got like the artist girlfriend, she's drawing this picture of like a dude, but his body is the United States. Yeah. And it's positioned so that Florida is the penis. Right, right. So I thought that was a funny, like, little connecting piece. But, yeah. um, but yeah, he basically says, like, he wants, like, the first kiss. He wants that experience. And mm-hmm. then uh, he says, you know, I will call you back. And I won't ever drink coffee because I just don't like coffee. Yeah, but right. I want to do everything else with you. I want to be with you. I want to have a life with you, mm-hmm. um, an actual relationship with you. Yep. So they had their first kiss. Mm-hmm. And she goes upstairs. And he's like, you can call me. She says, you can call me. And he's like, well, I don't even have your number. <laughs> but you can tell he's happy. But then he starts kind of doubling over like he's in pain. Yeah, that's kind of that kind of starts to trigger his uh, yeah. psychosis. And the red knight shows up again. And he doesn't have Jack. Doesn't have Jack. So, so he starts running away. He's fleeing for his life. But we're getting flashes of his memory. Yep. Where he remembers being in the restaurant. This is the moment. This is the moment. <laughs> in the restaurant with his wife and the gunman comes in with the shotgun. And they like just had a kiss. And he just blows the back of her head away. And all the blood sprays. It, yeah, explodes out and like into him. On, into his mouth. Yeah. Blood, brain matter and everything. And that, that's the scene that... It oh, is incredibly God. brutal, especially for what this film was at yeah. this point. Right. Um, but that's, yeah, that's like life, man. That's the that's the, what happened. That's and, what would happen. Yeah. Uh, so props to them for not like shying away. Yeah. Oof. It's rough. Um, but yeah, he is just like cowed over at this point and can barely function... Um, and if you didn't get it before, then this is when you get like the design of the Red Knight. I think when you oh, once yeah. you see the murder, you see it. Uh, it was interesting because Tiffany kind of like called it like way before. I think that's just because she's worked in like psych hospitals and stuff, mm. and she she has an interest in psychology anyways. So she actually really dug this film. Oh, nice! Because nice. she thought like the depiction of all of that was very like well done. Very cool. But yes, the knight is upon him, and we see him swinging his sword down. And as he do as he does so, we kind of switch to reality, mm-hmm. and there's these two thuds just brutally attacking. Well, he's Perry. back at the, uh, the little like bridge area, right where he first met Jack. 
And yeah, the two thugs show up again and they're like, hey, it's that guy that yeah. ran us off. So the sword that the knight has is actually a switchblade that the dude's like cutting him open with. And there's this great scene where you see them and then there's like the silhouette of the knight behind them, like yeah. on the wall of the building in the distance. Right. Really like chilling scene. Yeah. And Perry just kind of whispers, thank you, as he collapses. Mm-hmm. Next morning. Yeah, we don't pick up with Perry right away. No, we don't. We switch to Jack in the morning. He's having a spirited phone call with his old agent about getting back to work. And it's surprising because the agent's like, hey, if you want to come back, all we got to do is talk a little bit, sign a few things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can be back on the air immediately. And Anne comes out and she's like loving all over him. Things look good. And she starts to talk about like, you know, once you have an income too, maybe we should look at like a nicer place to live. Yeah, getting a bigger spot, getting a bigger place to live. Mm -hmm. But you could tell he's kind of reluctant and he... Says, oh, you've been great. You know, this has been wonderful. But maybe we need to slow down a little bit. You know, I'm yeah. doing better now. And maybe immediately I, I was alone. like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. My yeah. guy. He's already reverting back to his own character. <laughs> this is, um, I think, any film that's like a drama first, you, you have to have that like all is lost moment where you're like halfway to three quarters into the film. Yeah. And like everything goes wrong that can go wrong, and sure. you make the bad choice. And, and but I, I completely buy this. I do too. Yeah, because this is totally in his character. That's what he would do. Things are going good again, so he's just reverting back to who. Because he, he has like the kernel of being a good person. Yeah, but you have to remember, like this started with if I help this guy, I can go back to my old life. Yeah. I'll be forgiven. It was kind of a selfish stance to start with, right? And he never really shook that off. Mm-hmm. And she wants to know if he loves her, and he says, I don't know. <laughs> he can't say it. Yeah. So he says, I'll pack my stuff up tonight. Um, but then he gets a call about his wallet. Yeah. They found his wallet on a homeless guy. He had given his wallet to Perry to pay for the meal. Yeah. Um, so he goes to find Perry in the hospital, and he's in a catatonic stupor. Yep. And the doctor's like, he could wake up in a few days, he could wake up in a few years. We don't know. Yep, they say we can keep him, we can send him to where he was, they can hold him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a little bit of thing of like, he's like, are you family to this guy? Or yeah. uh, if you're family, you could take him home and you could look after him. But I wouldn't recommend but it. But I wouldn't recommend it. It would be very consuming. And Jack just lets it go. Yep. Let's it go. And there's a really sad scene of like Anne leaving the hospital and he's up on this like little like foyer like balcony, yeah. balcony and she's going down the stairs and just leaving. Mm-hmm. And it seems like he wants to say something to her, but he doesn't know what to say, so he just lets her go. Yeah. So sometime obviously passes here. Yeah. Because now Jack is back on the radio. Yep. Being his old dick self. Yep. Doing all the same shit again. Yep. Uh, so he's going with his agent uh, to, for a meeting about a TV show. Because we learned that the sitcom got canceled. Yeah, sitcom got canceled. <laughs> and the funny thing is, he's going to have the guy that was playing the father on his show. Right. As right. <laughs> uh, but on the way to the building for the meeting, they meet uh, the cab race singers out front. Yeah. And it looks like he's falling even harder times. Yeah, things are even worse for him. And he sees Jack, and he keeps calling his name. He's like, this guy knows me. You know, he, he can vouch for me because his cop's giving him a hard time. Mm-hmm. But Jack just fucking ignores him. Yeah. And this is do you do you want to be the one to say it because this is this is the Star Trek reference. Yeah. So the guy <laughs> pitching the story, the story for the TV show is John Motherfucking Delancey. Hell who yeah. Played Q on Star Trek. He was also on um oh God, what was his character's name? But he was on Days of Our Lives. 
Tiffany would know. She watched that as a kid. God, what was his mom. name? But I always liked him on that. I, I watched it because I hung out with my sister a lot mm-hmm. and her friends. Dude, so. when I started dating Tiffany, they were still watching it, and I would watch it too. They had like a fucking Giallo plot at one point. Yeah. Where they had like, it was the Salem Stalker, and it was yeah, like a black right, glove right, killer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I was like, that. okay, I'm cool with this. Yeah, I was down. They did an arc where there was like, the one dude became an exorcist, and they did like a whole like <laughs> yes, demon possession. Yeah. yeah. I was like, okay, this is like cool. It's crazy. Yeah, you can't go wrong with John Delancey. <laughs> but his story, The Pitch, is about, it's a comedy about homeless people. Yeah. Uh, but it's homeless people. They, they like being homeless. They yeah, love it's, it. It's fun for them. Yeah, and it's just they're, about the, they're, they're wacky but wise. It's just about the crazy antics they get up to. And it's called Home Free. <laughs> and it sounds exactly like the sort of thing that would have aired on Fox in the late '80s or yes. early '90s. Um, but it, it uh, hits Jack funny because he's like, "No, they're not funny. They're not whimsical yeah. people to laugh at." Yeah. So this kind of breaks him, and he gets up and leaves the meeting. Yeah. And he goes back to Perry's old boiler room and he finds some of his scribblings about the grail and he's remembering his conversation about the millionaire who has it. Uh-huh. And he's immediately like, no. Yeah, no. I'm not going to do it. No, I'm not doing it. He goes to see Perry in the hospital to talk to him and he's like, I know what you're doing. You're trying to make me go get the grail. I'm not going to do it. So yeah. you should just go ahead and wake up right now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and even if I did do it, <laughs> and also Lydia's there. Yeah, she she keeps coming to check up on him, but she doesn't notice Jack, and Jack doesn't talk to Lydia. But she's been taking care of him, like bringing him sheets and things like that. She brings him pajamas. Yeah, it's like was it watermelon pajamas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Which is sweet. It's sweet that she actually like keeps up with him like that. Yeah. Yeah, and Jack's like saying, I'm doing really well again. I'm getting a TV show. I got a hot girlfriend. I'm not responsible for you. I don't feel guilty. Yeah, he's like, I, I'm not, you're not my problem. Yeah. But then he finally tells Perry that if he does it, he's doing it for him. <laughs> yeah. So then we see Perry, he's decked out, he, well, Jack, he's kind of decked out in Perry's hat. Yeah, he gets like the costume from when he saved him, kind of. Yeah. And he's scaling the building. He's got a motherfucking grappling hook. He's got a grappling hook. He's got this knotted rope. <laughs> he's got dungeoneering gear. He's yeah, all... it's suddenly a D&D module, man. <laughs> yeah. He passes his uh, climb sheer surfaces. Uh-huh. Gets, up, gets up there. Uh, and he sees an image of a red knight in a stained glass window up there, too. Yeah, interestingly enough. Some ominous imagery. And he kind of hears a horse. And he's like, am I going crazy now? And there's this great scene where he like he hooks this other ledge to get up to the very top. And as he's climbing, he's like, I'm glad in New York no one looks up. Yeah, because he's dangling there. Right? <laughs> and he's sticking into the house. He finally breaks in. And he has this vision of the gunman coming yeah. up the stairs. It's chilling, dude. Like, he's coming down the stairs. And you start to hear, like, the clacking of steps. Yeah. And then it's fucking Edwin. And then he's going to pull out the shotgun. Yeah. Yeah. So he's kind of getting his own little, like, mm-hmm. mental block coming in. But he finally makes it to the study, and he finds the grail. Which is like a little trophy. Yeah, it's like a silver cup. Uh, there's an inscription on it. It says, Delaney Carmichael uh, for Xmas for Christmas 1932. <laughs> yeah. But I kind of like this, too, because it made me think of like The Last Crusade, where they have to like select the grail. Yeah. And there's all those lavish ones, but that's not the cup. It's like, right. you know, it's something much more one. mundane. Yeah. It's more about like the symbolism of it than right. the opulence. Uh, but he's not alone in this room. No, he finds out that they, uh, there's another guy there. The old dude's in the chair, the owner of this place. Uh, he's passed out. There's an empty bottle of pills on the floor. Clearly overdosed. Yeah. Um, so Jack's going to leave, 
and he notices that there's like a, a red light, like yeah. a laser light. Like security. He wouldn't actually see. Whatever. <laughs> in front of the front door. I like it too because when he first steps out, he doesn't know what it is. He just sees like a red glow at the base of the door. Yeah. And it made me think like, oh, is, is this is the, the red, red night? Yeah. yeah right. But then when he inspects it, yeah, he realizes it's like a security alarm. But he opens it, opens it and trips the alarm and runs out. Which leads to a headline the next day that a uh, burglary actually saved the life of this man. Yep. So he kind of saves two lives here. It's twofer. Yeah. <laughs> so Jack brings the cup to Perry, who is still asleep in a catatonic state, and it kind of puts it in his hand, so he's kind of holding it, and asks if he's going to wake up now. He's like, wake up now. I did the thing for yeah, you that yeah. you wanted. So Jack's exhausted, and he falls asleep next to him. Uh, and you see Perry's hands slowly start to move, mm-hmm. and he's waking up, and he sees the grill. God, this part is so fucking sad. Yeah. Like, it's good, but it's sad because he sits up and he remembers everything and mm-hmm. he knows who he was and he remembers his wife. Yeah, is, he had a dream where he was married. Yeah. And Jack was there, too. And he says, um, he says, I, I want to miss my wife now, Jack. Am I allowed to miss her? Yeah, is it okay to miss her? Yeah. God, it, it, I mean, it's so sad, but it's so good because it's like he finally breaks through mm-hmm. and like acknowledges everything. And can grieve. Yeah. yeah. And can, yeah, begin to grieve and stuff. Uh, Lydia shows up and he finds Perry awake. And he's getting all the patients to sing along with him. And Jack's there singing. Yeah, and Jack's like fully Yeah, he's invested. He's yeah. just like, yeah. <laughs> uh, he sees Lydia and he asks her if she's his girl. And she says yes. They kiss. It's they kiss. so heartwarming. Yep. And Jack goes to see Anne. Tells her he loves her. Which I love. He comes in and he's got like a little rose. Yeah. And she's like, what are you here for? With a wall of porno behind him, yeah. too, by the way. And he doesn't say anything at first. And she's like, don't do this. Don't just come in here and don't say anything. <laughs> Expect me to do it all. Right. And then he's just like, I love you. Yeah. Yeah. So they reconcile. They reconcile. She slaps him, which it was funny because Tiffany was like, if, if you did that to me, I would slap you. I would still slap you. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then immediately she slaps him. Yeah, yeah. She, he needs a slap. At least one. But then they kiss. And then we get like a nice little coda to the film, kind of, where it cuts back to Central Park. Jack's with Perry and they're laying naked and they're doing the uh, cloud busting thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Jack's like, oh man, it works. And Perry's like, that's just the wind. You know that, right? <laughs> and then we kind of get like one little final whimsical scene where it pans up over them and you can see like all of New York yeah, in the distance. Everything's lit up and there's fireworks. Yep. And it says the end. Mm-hmm. Like an old Hollywood film or something. Yeah, it felt very like golden age of Hollywood mm-hmm. send up. And that's the movie, man. That's the Fisher King. Uh, I got some notes, but I'm just going to say, man, man, so fucking good. It's a good movie. So good. It's a solid movie. It holds up pretty well. Um, Do you have any notes or anything you want to toss in there? Just a couple of things. I already mentioned that um, Mercedes Rule won for Best Supporting Actress. Yeah, this was nominated for a few things, right? It was nominated for Best Actor for Williams and Best Original Screenplay, but only won for the Best Supporting Actress. So it's the only Oscar-winning film of Gilliam's career in any capacity. Okay, well, speaking of Gilliam, uh, he had three rules in life that he said uh, when it came to making films. Uh, the first rule was that he would never do anyone's script but his own. The second one was he'd never work for a major studio. And then the third one was he would never go work in America in the Hollywood system. <laughs> he broke all three of these rules to make The Fisher King. Yep, yep, yep. And that was just because like, once he read the script and stuff, he believed so strongly in the, the, the concept. Yeah. And he was also coming off the adventures of Baron Munchausen, yeah. which is very pricey and bombed. Yeah. Um, so he made a much smaller budget movie 
this one cost twenty four million and grossed uh, seventy two, mm-hmm. so it did make a profit, and it was critically well received. Yep, uh, it was apparently a show he was on, and he actually said um, one of the things that kind of warmed him up to the idea more was that he was tired of doing big budget special effects films, mm-hmm. especially after the performance of Baron Munchausen, yeah. which I like that film, but I God, I again I saw it when it came out, and it's it, it, it was trippy and weird. <laughs> I remember enjoying it, but yeah. I haven't seen it since. Mm. I like the party game too, where like you tell stories about Baron right, and Yeah, right. I've, I've done that in like a RPG setting before, where you kind of look like a pseudo LARP sort of thing. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Um, this is the first film directed by Gilliam to not feature any of the members of Monty Python. Yeah. Um, it's such an interesting thing because I think he's probably more known for Monty Python stuff, but I mean, this is like such a different direction completely. Yes. But he, man, nails everything. Um, James Cameron had been considered for the director but he was already too immersed in Terminator 2 and couldn't take the job. Weird. Um, it said that his vision would have been a more reality-grounded kind of caper-style film about them planning the heist to get the grail. Mm. Um, it wouldn't have been as good, I think. Yeah, I think Gilliam was the right choice here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mercedes, let's talk about her for a minute. Yeah. Apparently when she was in college, she did a thesis about the T.S. Eliot poem, The Wasteland. Nice. Classic. Um, but the Fisher King is mentioned in that poem. Mm-hmm. So when she got past the script by her agent to read, she almost immediately was like, I have to take this Sweet. role. Yeah. yeah. She's like, I got to do this. She's awesome. Uh, what else? Uh, Gilliam was inspired to cast Jeff Bridges after watching him in the fabulous Baker boys from 1989. Mm-hmm. He was on apparently like a cross country airplane flight and caught it. It's interesting. And Bridges is great. Well, the whole cast is great. Yeah. Everybody's literally great. every single person in this film like their slays it. Mm-hmm. Um. Oh, the, the song "The Power" by Snap is featured prominently in the film. It seems to be a favorite of Jack's to put on the air. All right. Um. So the Fisher King is actually one of two movies that came out in 1991 that used that song prominently. The other one is Hudson Hawk. Oh my God. <laughs> that one was a famous bomb. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate it though that he kept going back to that. Like when he does the uh, the faux like contest thing with mm-hmm. Lydia, that's the song that he puts on at first. Like that's coming out of the radio. Right. Uh, let's see. We talked about the Red Knight already. Uh, oh, um. So, uh, Perry's focus on Lydia. Uh, the kind of like impetus for them to go after her is Jack's like, well, maybe you know having her in your life can help you. Um. So one of the legends about the Grail is that it is buried under Rosalind Chapel in Scotland, mm. which was built by the Sinclair clan. And the name Sinclair is often brought up in several different versions of the Grail myth. Yeah. So that's like some real, real deep cut uh, deep Holy cut. Grail lore in there. Um, the castle, the big like mansion that that guy owns that has the Grail, uh, it's the facade of the Squadron A Armory, which is now part of the Hunter College campus. Cool. So that's a little connection with uh, Perry because mm-hmm. he was a professor right. at that college. Every college should have a castle. <laughs> that would be cool. Uh, let's see. The dialogue that Perry mutters to himself when he's on top of the car in that scene, that comes from Percival, which is the like grail Arthurian lore character that Perry's kind of named after. And then also, I think it's mentioned in Don Quixote. 
which much, much later, Terry Gilliam did The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Ah, yes. I never saw that, did you? I did not either. Um, let's see. I think that's... <laughs> There's a note here that says, A nod to Charles Chaplin can be seen in a group of singers at the end of the movie. See, I saw this guy with a mustache. I'm thinking, is that Hitler? <laughs> it's hard to tell sometimes, right? <laughs> but yeah, I think that's all I got. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> so, should I go first or should you go first? Um, Who talks first? Maybe I'll go first this time. Okay, cool. I flat out love this film. I mm-hmm. thought it was incredible. I thought it was amazing. Um, I love Robin Williams. I've seen a lot of his films. Um, this is one, like I read the synopsis someday and I was like, eh, I don't really want to watch that. It doesn't seem interesting to me. Right. So this is again, one of those things where it's like, this is why I love doing the podcast. This is why I love taking listener suggestions. It will introduce us to stuff that we maybe would have never caught. And I think this is really literally a film that like I gave it five stars on letterboxd, wow. but if left to my own devices, I don't know if I ever would have watched it just, on my own. Right. Um, so thank you, Daniel, so much for suggesting this. I assumed that your pick would be something that was quite good, and it certainly delivered. Um, but yeah, man, like, literally every level to wherever you want to talk about it, the cinematography, the acting, the the story, kind of like the, the metaphors. Mm-hmm. I love, like, I already love Arthurian legends and stuff sure. anyways, uh, which, hey, unrelated to movie stuff, but the new Pendragon tabletop role-playing game comes out this year. Oh, nice. Um. I took a whole class on Middle English when I was in college mm. and read like the Arthurian legends and like, uh, you fucking nerd, all that stuff. Um, so I, I dig all of that and it's, I love how much this was like threaded into the film. It was kind of like this modern fantasy, but the fantasy element is coming in through like the psychosis of these characters that are very traumatized and very hurt. And like the playing through of the story is them like grasping that and coming to terms with it. Mm-hmm. And then coming out the other side. And, um, and then how much is like metaphor, like the story of the Fisher King and how that mirrors their situation. Uh, I just thought that was like fucking brilliant. Um, so yeah, I have, I, I love it. I have only good things to say. Nice. So it's a five star for you. Five stars. All wow. The way. Well, that's a good way to start the year. Yeah. All right. Um, yes. Now bring us down a little. Okay. I will. I will. Bring us back <laughs> to reality. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I forgot a lot of this. It's been ages. It's probably been a good, 30 years. Yeah. Plus. You mentioned to me in passing before we watched it, um, that it's kind of a downer film. Like that was your memory of it because that scene yeah. stuck in my head so much about the girl getting her head blown off. Cause and... I had mentioned that to Tiffany. And then when we finished it, she was like, well, that was so like heartwarming. Why did he think it was a downer? And I was like, but it well, does have a lot of dark. Stuff it does. In it too. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a very serious movie at mm-hmm. times. Um, bittersweet. I think yeah. is. And again, that's life. Describe it. Right. That's life, baby. Right. So it's not quite as dark as I remember. Um, it does leave some room for hope. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is the right balance to strike. Yes. Um, I did enjoy watching it. It was great to revisit. Um, it's such an odd movie for Gilliam too, because it yeah. is kind of warmer, more lighthearted. Again, he didn't write it, so it's probably part of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I I think this movie is one of those that either it's going to work, it's going to be okay, or it's going to be great based mm. on the performances. Yeah. So the cast is the secret weapon in this movie. I mean, oh, it, yeah. it would not work if it didn't have this cast. Everyone's on fire. Everyone's at the top of the game. <laughs> um, 
Like I can think of tons of Robin Williams performances that are like just top tier, and sure. then this was like right up there. Oh, the man never half-assed it. Yeah, you know he he always gave it his all, and uh, he was just a great dramatic performer as he was comedic performer. He could do anything. He could even do a little bit of horror. Did you ever see One Hour Photo? Yeah, I love One Hour Man, Photo. He's creepy yeah. as hell in that. Yeah, that's, he's great in it. That's great. I wish he would have done more, but me you know, too. Yeah. Oh, or Insomnia, is. which wasn't a great movie. I never saw that. The one. Nolan film. Okay, yeah. but he's really good in it. Mm, I have to give it a watch. It's probably Nolan's weakest movie because it was a remake. I think. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> I saw that uh, Nolan's probably not going to do James Bond. So, uh, we already did it. His James Bond. <laughs> yeah, did it. That and uh, part of uh, Inception. Yeah. The end. Anyway. Uh, So, a really fun movie. Okay. I know I sound like a broken record. (laughs) It's a little too long for me. I I start to sort of drift off a little Mm bit. Um, I think it could have been a little bit bit tighter. I'm going to challenge you. What would you cut? Um, I would cut... Yeah, so I was going to say some of the Lydia stuff, honestly. Really? Yeah. Hmm. But then we're losing Amanda Plummer. Yeah. And I don't like that. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I don't know. you got to kill your darling sometimes. <laughs> I'd find something to cut. I'm just saying. I to, could trim 10, 15 minutes. To me, it's all killer, no filler. <laughs> um, But it is... And it is kind of a downer in parts. Mm-hmm. That one scene still packs a punch, I think. Oh, yeah. I was um, not ready for that. But it does have a nice uplifting ending. And I, I wonder how much of that... I, I kind of watched this a little bit more critically because I was wondering how much of this is fantasy. Mm. Like how much of this is actually happening. Yeah. And not just a point of view of one of the insane characters. Um, so I, I kind of take a lot of this with a grain of salt. You oh. know, it's like, it's almost like an unreliable narrator type thing. Mm. Okay. Does it really have this happy of an ending, or is that just you know what Jack hopes happens? I want to say I think so, but I also think that's because that's the ending I want right. it to be. Right. Um, and if you have a shred of empathy at all, that's kind of what you want after you watch it, because sure you can't help but like these characters. Yeah, you, you want a, a good ending for these people. Yeah. Um. Yeah. At the end of the day, I would give it four stars. Mm. I don't think it's quite a classic, but it's definitely a solid. Well, me and the Criterion Collection disagree with you, sir. <laughs> I don't think every movie in the Criterion Collection is a five-star movie. Um, but, I mean, it, it holds up really well. It's still a great watch. Um, if you like older films, mm-hmm. especially if you like Robin Williams or Jeff Bridges, I urge you to check it out if you haven't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, another thing I wanted to say, I never really found a good time to bring it up. Mm-hmm. Um, this film would not get made today, I also. think. So? Just the kind of films that get made and go into theater and get shown oh, fuck and stuff. No. Yeah. Not in any way. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of special about it. Cause I was like, Oh yeah, there used to be movies that were just this mm-hmm. and you could go see that in the theater and it would be like a thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I mean, this might be a streaming movie. Maybe, yeah. you know, like a like drop right original to Netflix, or something. Yeah. Um, and that made me kind of sad when I realized that. Oh yeah. 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 They used to take more chances back in the day. Because movies didn't have to cost $300 million for some reason. <laughs> and make like quadruple the budget. Yeah. Anyway. But no, it's 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 a great movie. Uh, I recommend it highly. Uh, it's not one of Gilliam's best. That would be Time Bandits, in my opinion. <laughs> Which we'll have to do one day. Yeah, we should do that sometime. But I yeah. think it's required if you have a film podcast. Again, like I think, I think that's one of the movies you have to, you have to do. Around to it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Cool. Well, I'm glad cool. you dug it, man. Yeah, it's it. I I love doing listener episodes, and this was a great one to kick the year off with. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's it's not one either of us would have chosen. I think yeah. on our own. So I love that aspect about it too. Sweet. So that's a great kickoff to 2024. But now, Jason, you have the very hard task mm. of following that up. I do. Uh, <laughs> this would not be that good. <laughs> oh, disclaimer. Okay. I'm not shooting for a classic here. All right. But I do want to give a horror movie. I like a lot some attention because okay. I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. I had no clue what this was. Awesome. It you, is... uh, my, my Christmas gift is a copy of this film so I can watch it. So. Yeah. yeah. Add to your Blu-ray collection. Hell yeah. It's from 2007, uh, written and directed by Maurice Devereaux, mm-hmm. called End of the Line. Or also known as... Descent into Hell. Descent into Hell, apparently. Um, das End ist nahe. <laughs> Uh, the, the blurb on this is... So this Blu-ray says. Yeah. Uh, a woman named Karen boards a late night train and fights with several other passengers to survive a murderous night after becoming trapped in a tunnel. Ooh. Indeed. Okay. So... So we're talking a little midnight meat train here, or... Possibly. This is one of those movies I don't want to talk too much about. Okay. Uh, there's a few twists and turns, I think. Some you may see coming, some of you may not. It's not a perfect film. I stress that. It is not <laughs> okay. a perfect film. It's not a criterion level. No. It's okay. Uh, but it is a really fun, solid horror flick that just doesn't get enough of. And I, I like to give more exposure. Yeah. To those it's in movies. the titles. Yeah. <laughs> to those movies that may not have it. And let me see if I can see if it is uh, streaming, streaming somewhere. Anywhere. Yeah. Um, this seems like a Tubi thing, but I don't know. Uh, it's on Screenbox. Oh, hey. Screenbox. Okay. And apparently Prime Video, too. Well, there you go. So this is fairly accessible. Which I'm going to say, Screenbox, uh, pretty affordable. Yeah, it's five bucks, right? Yeah. Like five, Actually, five I canceled my subscription. I wasn't watching it enough. Oh. I was always watching Shudder. So. Huh. When you can't watch Shudder, you got to go for something else. So Apparently. But yeah, check it out on Screenbox. I mean, it's, it seems like a good service. There's a lot of good stuff on there. Um, but uh, join us in two weeks for this one. We'll see what uh, Dustin thinks about it. Hell yeah. See if it holds up to my memories. Well, we've reached the end of another episode and pretty good launch for the year, I think, considering where I was like two or three weeks ago. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. happy about that. Um, As usual, you can hit us up on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. You can email us at genreexposure at gmail.com. Tell us what you've been watching, what you think is cool, and recommend us some movies to check out because with this new format, we're going to need more listener episodes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We've got plenty in the bank, but more is always good. Do you have any underseen gems? Underseen gems. That film you champion that no one ever loves or talks about, and you want two dudes to rant for roughly an hour and a half to two hours about it. (laughs) Spill our guts. We'll do it. We'll do it, man. We're fucking crazy. We'll do it. (laughs) Um, But otherwise, you have been listening to Genre Exposure. Bye, everyone. Take care. Films Podcast Network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal, providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. 
the PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening.